you know, approaching inclusivity can feel intimidating because you don't want to do the wrong thing. I think if you approach design choices with authenticity and with listening to the people, hearing authentic experiences and bringing those into the design process, if you make a mistake, it's going to be okay. Welcome to the Future Of, a podcast by Fresh Consulting, where we discuss and learn about the future of different industries, markets, and technology verticals. Together, we'll chat with leaders and experts in the field and discuss how we can shape the future human experience. I'm your host, Jeff Dance. In this episode of The Future Of, we're joined by Vanessa Delisle and Matt Schoenholz to explore the future of inclusive design. For the first half, we'll hear from Matt, a design leader who has led design teams in creating award-winning products with the likes of Microsoft, HP, and Meta. We'll get to hear his unique perspective on creating adaptive and assistive technology, as well as some of his personal experiences with inclusive design. For the second half, we'll hear from Vanessa Delisle, a senior UX designer here at Fresh Consulting, also a leader and advocate for inclusive design. In our interview, she gives us a valuable breakdown of inclusive design and how we can integrate it into the design process. In both interviews, we talk about why this matters uh, for the future of humanity and technology. Great to have you with us, Matt. Uh, Can you tell the listeners a little bit more about your background and yourself? Sure. Thanks for having me on. I started my career this, you know, fresh out of school, running my own shop with a, a few friends. Uh, we did a lot of emerging web work. And then after that, I got uh, hired on at Frog. They had a lot of much larger projects, much larger clients than I had been used to. This uh, gave me an opportunity to really dive into some of the details that as a small firm, we weren't able to, to really look at things like inclusive design, accessible design, after Frog, uh, I had a chance to lead the Xbox design team for the console. And this, uh, again, was an opportunity where accessibility and inclusive design was uh, a huge part of what we did, trying to make those products that touch millions of people way more accessible, way more inclusive, you know, all walks of life. I worked at uh, Microsoft beyond that in the Office 365 team, where I spent a bunch of time with uh, the machine learning uh, and predictive analytics team to try to figure out how to personalize uh, the Office 365 suite to the user. And so, again, this looked at not only just able-bodied um, individuals, but we looked at a lot of things of how accessible is it from a screen reader perspective, uh, for example. Once I left uh, Microsoft, I, I ran the studio at Teague for a few years, trying to help them diversify the company away from just airline work we looked at other transportation. We looked at things uh, like autonomous driving, uh, for example, and then even some of the early uh, work uh, with Blue Origin for some of the space flight and, and astronaut experiences. I left Teague after a couple of years and took a little bit of a break, spent a few months just relaxing, um, getting away from tech for a little while. And then I went to uh, Facebook or Meta now and helped run the uh, AR design team where we worked on originally uh, worked on mobile AR. So all the things that you see on Instagram, Snap and and Facebook, any of the like face effects uh, on that. And then I was asked to lead the AR glasses product. And AR glasses is really where most of the work that we did, um, that I did for the system UX team was focused on accessibility, was focused on ethics, was focused on privacy. Um, So all of these more difficult facets, not just designing the interface, but making sure it's a product that works for 
it's, you know, since it's glasses, it's got to work for people that have, you know, limited vision. It's got to work for people that have limited mobility. And if you think about the interaction, it has a lot of different modalities. So from hands to voice to, you know, even something physical. And then uh, I left uh, Facebook uh, or Meta a little over a year ago and just uh, wanted to do something a little bit less uh, in the world of tech and more um, something that I was just really passionate about around building uh, adventure vehicles with clients, teaching them along the way. I realized how much I love teaching. And so it's, it goes back, you know, like I've, I've just been a designer for, for all these years and design is always a thread. And I realized that I was able to teach uh, accessible design when I was at Frog uh, to a lot of the younger designers. Did so again, mentoring people at Meta. And then now I get to like continue to teach clients that I work with. For you, what is inclusive design? Inclusive design for me is is looking beyond uh, just able-bodied users, looking out at the entire market of, of who can use this product, who can benefit from this product, and how do we design uh, for the users, even if they have limitations. It, it looks at not just designing for one particular market, but trying to understand how there's a, a larger market out there that we can create adaptive technologies to really, and, and assistive technologies to help overcome any impairments, any, uh, you know, any, any disabilities that they might have. But inclusive design is, is really looking at the, the big mass and not just individual groups within. Tell us more about why this matters to you personally. Um, why did you kind of get, you know, gravitate to some of these areas as you're working with, you know, a variety of, of world leading companies? I was first exposed to the idea of accessibility and, and inclusive design when I was at Frog uh, down in Austin. I was invited to join a, a competition to represent Frog looking at accessible technologies. And so while I felt really secure as being a designer, this was a new world. And so looking at, you know, like Steve Krug's book, Don't Make Me Think, or you have the emerging thought on accessible design. I dove in and, and learned a lot about it. And I was, at first it was like, okay, how do we deal with screen readers for blind people or visually impaired uh, individuals? And, and that's simple things like web markup, just having clean code, uh, at least on the web or, or having the same features in, in built-in software. My son is, is colorblind, for example. And so this is something that, you know, as he was growing up and I was designing things, he was like, well, why are you using brown? And I was like, he was in brown and got to really see how his world was was shaped by his visual you know condition and one of the things that i you know from a personal perspective my hearing's not great you know probably too many punk rock shows when i was growing up not wearing ear plugs or, or ear protection when i was using tools but my hearing is is not great especially in places with loud you know loud ambient noise so i got to work on a really neat technology around adaptive and augmented hearing. And this uses, you know, directional microphones. So where I look is what I can hear. And so in a restaurant, this, you know, this actually brought some like tears to my eye because I could look across the table and the restaurant was really loud. And normally I try to like read lips a little bit, you know, just to like give me a little bit more cue of what someone's saying, but I could hear this person perfectly. The ambient noise of the restaurant was just gone. And this was amazing. And so if we think of things like augmented reality, it's not just the visual side that we can change, but it's also giving people superpowers or giving people 
you know, just bringing them back up to, to normal was huge. And so the ability to do this and to help humanity, going back to what you were saying, I, I think this can really help humanity in a way where it levels the playing field. It sort of helps alleviate some of the classes of have and have not. And it's something that has been really uh, sort of personal for me where I've been able to mentor teams and really focus on this from the beginning and not just look at like, you know, an accessibility checkbox at the end of like, oh yeah, did we make it accessible? It's like, what's the product itself and how do we make inclusive design core to, you know, to the future looking endeavor. In addition to the conversation we had with our guests on today's episode, we asked another expert to provide their insights on the future. Hi, I'm Sujata Isabel Moraes. I'm a seasoned graphic design professional with over 14 years of industry experience, ranging across graphic design, brand strategy and identity, human-centered design experiences, and visual communication across boutiques as well as corporate design firms. I find it important because your final outcome of whether it's a design solution or whether it's even, you know, the way you communicate with people you deal with on an everyday basis is just a much better output. It really feels like a very well thought out and holistic solution. I think another thing that inclusive design definitely ensures is people being creative without any barriers, without any sense of hesitation, because there never is a right answer. And when you have multiple people involved, you're always able to get varied perspectives because everyone has their own experiences. And when they are able to bring that to the table to help a design solution, it always adds a lot more value. Ensuring that you have a diverse population also ensures a much more inclusive solution. And from a long-term perspective, especially in a scenario of design, ensuring that you're inclusive about the things that you work on, definitely urge your team or people involved to be more invested in what you're working on because they constantly are feeling like they are part of the process and they get the sense of feeling like they're genuinely adding value to what they are doing. Can you share some examples of inclusive design maybe that you've worked with and others that you're aware of just to kind of make it more concrete for our audience? I think inclusive design is something as simple as like closed captioning, if you will. It's like an, a feature that is fairly you know easy to add into something. Or if you think of the physical world, it's, it's uh, wheelchair ramps, uh, crosswalks. I mean, these are all forms of inclusive design that help get all people, uh, you know, across the street, for example, uh, could be the audible tone that you hear. Other aspects of inclusive design that I've worked on is, is some of the augmented hearing uh, mentioned earlier. There's augmented vision that we can look at for like colorblind people. It can shift the colors enough where they actually see uh, properly uh, our glasses. There are things that we can do that can help people focus at different times. And these are all aspects of inclusive design. Apple's done a great job uh, building this into all of their products. One of my good friends worked on the accessibility team for iOS and looking at all of the features that they have, they really looked at this as a core part of their product uh, and not a not an edge case. Microsoft has done a, a great job with this, that if you look at their like 
uh, inclusive tech lab, good friend of mine that I worked with on Xbox console, Bryce, uh, was the one that pushed the idea of the adaptive controller and really pushed that idea. I think those are amazing examples of inclusive design. Nice. How does like inclusive design just help us be more intentional? If inclusive design is a core part of the design process, again, not something that happens at the end, but happens throughout, it gives us the opportunity to pause, to consider, and to look beyond just the feature that we might be doing. But how does this feature play out for people of varying abilities? How does this product uh, work for people that might have an accent. Uh, if you think of uh, voice recognition, it's like built into every product now. But anyone that has a you know a thick accent, uh, I was out on the river this last week, and my buddy was using his GoPro, and it's it's pretty neat. You don't have to like go up and touch the button. You can say GoPro, start recording. Except he's French, and he has a really thick French accent, and so he switched the language to French, and then all of a sudden it becomes, you know, it's tuned for that dialect. That's one thing that I would, I would look at is that if we design this in the core of the product, we do pause, we do consider more cases, uh, use cases uh, and capabilities. I think that it starts there. We've seen a lot of change in the last you know, 15 to 20 years, but if we look at the next 20, you know, the babies of today are gonna be growing up in the next 20, I think it's gonna be even faster. But, you know, as we talk to companies like, not everyone has the resources of a Meta or of a, a Google, an Apple, et cetera. What would you say to these companies, these product teams you know, that, that need to be investing in this? What, what would be some of your kind of rationale points there? There's one like, thing that comes to the top of my mind right away is hiring younger designers, hiring younger engineers that are actually being taught this in school. If I think back to you know, my education, this was not even talked about. I'm, this was not a thing. And so some of the fiercest advocates that I've seen in companies are some of the youngest designers that come out of school and come out of like early in their career, they're asking questions that others are not asking. And so that's one way to start where it could happen over time. Um, you know, as companies do grow, as they can bring in even one more designer. Um, we had one person at uh, Meta and another person at Microsoft that I can think of that raised their hand just simply and said, hey, you know, I happen to be a person of color and the additive rendering from augmented reality doesn't represent people of darker skin tones well because there's no black. You know, all you're doing is adding light to a field. And she championed this and it went all the way, you know, up to Zuck and built a small team around it so that was just one person just asking the question of like, hey, like every time I see myself here, well, actually I can't see myself, what do we do about this? So that's one way I think there are a lot written right now about inclusive design, about accessibility that I think the teams that already exist, so you don't have to grow, but I think that you can mandate this as a core objective in your product, that it needs to be accessible to you know, these defined groups, because that's part of our market. So that can happen within, and it needs to be championed, I think, from the top down. Obviously, the, the idea of it can go from bottom up and just one person raising their hand, but I think that you need to have leaders and companies that find this important. 
given all your experience across different tech companies, what are your thoughts on sort of the technology that can be a game changer for the future? I think the convergence of three different technologies that are emerging right now are poised to make a really big difference in the product design of the future. I think machine learning and artificial intelligence is amazing at pattern recognition. And so the more we start to feed those tools and those algorithms with experiential data, so this could be how people use a product and what can it switch. I think AI combined with augmented reality, augmented reality is, I think, has a goal in a way of getting people back into the real world and not just interfacing with the world through small screens and screens that require touch and screens that pull our focus away from the world. And so I think the more that we can combine augmented reality, artificial intelligence, inclusive design into products, the better uh, we will be. And I think that it's not just the pattern recognition of, uh, of artificial intelligence, but if you think of like what Dali is doing or Midjourney and how we can start to compose imagery even on the fly, this can go a long way towards something that not every use case was originally designed, but we can actually have use cases being served on the fly by combining some of these technologies. And so those are the things that make me really hopeful. I I also have big concern with that combination <laughs> because in some way right now we can sort of control every experience that can happen in a product in one way or another, whether we look at that and you know whether products today have, have looked at that, but we design sort of the complete experience. When you start looking at on the fly generated user interface, which I, I think that we'll get to in the next you know, five, 10 years, then we don't quite know what that little black box is doing and what experience someone might be having. And those individuals designing the artificial intelligence and artificial intelligence have a responsibility as well, just like designers, to look at where biases come from. As we kind of close out our session together, I really appreciate uh, all the advice uh, so far and your insights. You know, you've been in a lot of different companies. You've seen a lot of different things. If you go back to kind of giving yourself some advice when you're kind of just stepping out of school, what would it be? Slow down. Be more thorough. Um, I think young designers come out, and I was definitely guilty of this, of like, okay, what's the trendy style right now? Or what's the, what's happening? And we've gone through like web one, web two, and and you saw everything move from like really skeuomorphic design to really flat design. I'd want to really give myself advice to think about the larger world out there, to go travel more, to see cultures, and to spend more time researching um, rather than just jumping you know, pen to paper or start pushing pixels right away. It's really understanding who the users are at an emotional level as well before we just start designing. And so I think another thing... One other aspect that I would give other bit of advice I would give myself is start prototyping from day one, because as, as soon as you start prototyping, you start learning what works and what doesn't work. And as soon as you have a prototype, you can start putting that in the hands of users and you get so much valuable feedback early on 
And so don't worry if it doesn't look great. Don't worry if it isn't done. Just get into the hands of users as quick as you can, and you'll learn more and be more efficient with design uh, and your process than you could not, you know, having, not having that information. It's great having you here. Really appreciate your wisdom, some of your insights, your experience. And I know that the users will too. Any closing thoughts on inclusive design before we wrap up? I just want to thank you again for having me on. And I think it's wonderful that you guys are focusing on topics like inclusive design, because the more we can sort of tell the story, the more we can get the importance of accessibility and inclusive design out there to more and more people that are in a position to design and produce products, the better that humanity will be. And so I think this is a, a really important topic. It's not just edge cases. It's not just a, a cost added activity. It's something that will produce better products that, that are a joy to use. And so thanks for, for bringing up the topic. So Vanessa, it's great to have you on the show. You're a senior UX designer here at Fresh Consulting, been here for six years. And I know you have a diverse background in product management and teaching and even journalism. Can you tell us more about your background and, and kind of what led you to being passionate about inclusive design? Yes. So you're right. I do have a very diverse background. I started my career in teaching and, you know, I spent about a decade teaching in the United States and also in schools across the world, really. Got to meet a lot of people. I actually started a podcast while I was abroad called Foreigners Media, where I really took the time to meet people who were living the foreigner experiences I was, really learning about different experiences of people of different cultural backgrounds. Always been a passion of mine. So after about a decade of teaching, I, I realized that design was actually a strong passion of mine. And I wanted to transition into tech. Being from Seattle, having it everywhere, it, it really felt like a good fit for me. So that's where I met you. You know, I came to Fresh Consulting. It's been a great six years at Fresh Consulting. And in that, gotten experience as a project manager, a UX product manager, and then now to most recently a senior UX designer. In that time, have had the ability to the fortune of working, you know, across dozens of industries and with hundreds of, of clients and different businesses and just really recently becoming aware of the practice of inclusive design and, and how that speaks even more deeply to a true passion of mine, you know, and making sure that the work that we do and the technology we create speaks to and it is accessible to all audiences, not just those who live in the so-called center space, something that can be, you know, so that's why inclusive design is the approach to get there and something that that's I'm noting is so important and bringing to the practice of UX design. So for the listeners, let's start with some of the 101 and then let's kind of delve into the future a little bit. And then, and I'd like to get a little advice from you as well at the end. So to start with, what is inclusive design? Yeah, great question. Inclusive design is at a design approach that considers the full range of human diversity. So it does not choose a singular centered person that we design for, but instead it requires a designer to think about excluded populations. And when I talk about excluded populations, we may kind of automatically go to able-bodied or disabled or color of skin, but 
we want to consider the full spectrum. These are things like education and literacy, gender, religion, sexual orientation. So we have to consider all of these items. And, and when we design products, are there excluded personas who don't have a voice in the direction of our technology? So that's kind of the, the very high level. And there's so much depth to it from there. As we think about the topic today, it's really designing for those that also might be left out. And so how do we intentionally kind of design for everyone? And actually, as you were speaking, I wanted to, I, there is an important distinction that I think is, should be made here. Inclusive design is not designing for everyone. And so the practice of inclusive design, it is fairly new. So I will say, like, are there straightforward processes that folks can follow? No, they're still being defined by design teams. So in some cases, it's about finding an excluded persona. In some cases, it's about designing for a specific ability or disability. And the important note is when we have an inclusive lens to our design process, it's about finding, being specific and intentional about finding an excluded person or population. Designing for that exclusion ultimately creates more opportunity for people who are outside of that center space to be brought into the product. Now, what designing for everyone might look like would be looking at generalizations or finding, you know, trying to find someone of every race that we need to design for, every, you know, disability that we need to design for, and then trying to make one-off solutions, right? And so the idea of inclusive design is finding those specific users, creating solutions that are specific to that need, and then ultimately designing for more people there. And there's a lot of examples that I think can add a little more color and, and realness to what I'm saying, but that's the nut of it. Like really considering a range of perspectives versus just designing for, let's say, the majority. Mm -hmm. One set of questions that really made it come together for me was when we look at personas, we find like this key main user and their perspective is important and shouldn't be dismissed. But then there's this set of questions. It's whose voice is missing here? Who has the most to lose? And who is being excluded just ultimately from these design decisions? So I'd like to give this example. I was working with a team member and I was kind of showing her examples of inclusive design and and she said, well, on this project, you know, we made our persona around this user who has been in the industry for 30 years. It, it's a, a, it was an application that would support police in identifying criminals kind of just as a very high level. Yep. And so they centered someone who was, you know, who had been an, a career cop for 30 plus years. And I said, well, let's rewind. Let's look at these questions and who has the most to lose? Whose voice is missing here? Well, we know that folks in law enforcement, it's typically a career path that's generational. So potentially we're centering someone whose father or grandfather was in criminal justice. So maybe the person we need to be thinking about is someone who is, this is their first, they're the first person in their family who got a college degree. They are supporting a multi-generational home on this singular income. Maybe the people in the house that they live with aren't English speaking. And so thinking about that person probably has the most to lose 
they might not have all of the lingo and, you know, terminology down that someone who's been in the career for 30 some years might have. We need to make sure that that person has just as much ability to operate well with the platform as any other officer in their field. Tell us more about why this matters to you personally. Um, why did you kind of get, you know, gravitate to some of these areas as you're working with, you know, a variety of, of world-leading companies? So inclusive design is important to me because I think as I've gotten to know more people around the world and, and learn to empathize with their experiences, I realize how many exclusive experiences we have. I mean, there's just so many I can think of if just in me and my own inner circle, which I would say we are a very like included, not excluded group of people. You know, if I think about my mother or my grandmother trying to use their phone and having it on 2x, 3x magnification and they're on a website and they can't see anything because everything's been blown up. And, you know, could that, could we make this experience better for someone? I mean, if we're looking at low vision people, how many more people can we serve a better experience if those low vision experiences were at the center of our design choices? I also, you know, an example that I love looking back on is meeting this woman, Marlena. There's a restaurant in Birion where I live that's named after her. And my husband and I went to the restaurant one night and we got to meet, oh, this is Marlena. The restaurant's named after her. We sat with her. We had wine all night. She was blind. And what she did was she kind of pulled out her, she was just talking about her life and her experiences and her lived experiences with us. And the fact that the screen reader and Uber have completely changed her life. She's like, the independence I get from Uber and my ability to just navigate and get to wherever I want, it's complete. And, you know, she was, I believe in her 70s when we were talking to her. So she, you know, um, didn't have, she just had her and her husband with her. So the independence that she was able to gain through technology, that's something that's always stuck with me. And, you know, in being in a design career, realizing, well, how many times have I centered someone who uses a screen reader in my design process. You know, this is something that it feels like a miss and feels like something that, you know, wanting to remedy and a responsibility that I take seriously in the design process. Can you share some more examples of of inclusive design that people might be familiar with or that could help people understand it better? Sure. So I think a good way to start would be to look at an example of exclusive design. Okay. And so we think about face recognition to open your phone, right? I think for a lot of people that felt like such a huge advancement in technology, the fact that you could just look at your phone and open it up. Well, what a lot of people were faced with was the fact that when they would look at their phone, and I'm talking specifically about people of color, people with darker skin tones, multiple people were being able to open other people's phone. So what the problem was, was that People with darker skin tones were not brought into the design process. They were not looked at in user testing. And therefore, when that technology came out, it immediately excluded a huge, you know, population uh, from interacting with the technology. So what Google, Google is, I feel like, a company that I've learned a lot from on this topic. They've got a pretty robust, inclusive design process at their company. And so... They, I've been able to learn a lot from them. Their Google Assistant is something that they've 
uh, been able to share some of their learnings on inclusive design from. So they have a new like look to talk feature. They made sure that when they were doing that, people of all colors were included in the testing to make sure that it would actually respond to people with various skin tones. Also, another feature of theirs is that they don't label names or voices as female voice or male voice. It's just voice one and voice two. One is a higher pitch voice and one is a lower pitch voice. But I think being able to see labels that don't give the binary automatically removes the barrier of, well, I'm not male or female if you're a non-binary person. And that's also an example of inclusive design just in that one piece of technology. You mentioned skin tone, and it made me think of a couple of things, a few things. One is my daughter Milan has like a black Barbie and, and a white Barbie. And and then I also we have, you know, band-aids of different colors. We also have like emojis of different colors, you know, from a skin tone perspective. Are those examples of more inclusive design? Yes, those are examples of inclusive design. And in, including things, you know, looking at the nude band-aids, you'll start to see Makeup and clothing are also adopting this of taking away the nude label from peach tones and using different methods to label colors. Thinking about inclusive design, about how we consider inclusivity becomes even more important for the future because we've seen both sides of technology and like how humanity rolls through with that technology. And so there's these amazing things and these really hard things. But that comes back to like, well, how do we, how do we? help the future be better, right? How do we design with more intent? And inclusive design seems to strike at the center of that that focus. Definitely. I agree with you. And it's so bizarre. You know, I think an approach that I like to have is believe that everyone is doing the best they can with information they have. I think that's a really like uh, helpful way to navigate life. Sounds empathetic. <laughs> yeah. Yes. However, even with that perspective and that mindset, we we see people behaving poorly. And so what, what I mean by this, where I'm going with this is, you know, when we talk about seeing the best of people and the worst of people, I think about Airbnb and something that they had to design through and think through. A couple of years ago, there was this movement, and I don't know if it's still prevalent. I remember hearing about it a couple of years ago. It's Airbnb while black. And the idea was that Someone would request a reservation, someone, a black person would request a reservation and it would get denied. So they would have a white friend or coworker make the exact same reservation and it would get received. And so I just thought of that with the community and, and the way that, you know, we can be so inclusive or divisive. And so I know that Airbnb brought people in specifically to work through this problem to say, we want to be an inclusive environment. How do we make sure we we continue to design to make sure we're creating inclusive experiences? And one of the key things that they did was bring in an inclusive team. So it's not always only about the output, but it's also about the team and making sure all the voices or excluded voices are brought into the process. And not just from a observing or, you know, bring you in for a moment and, le- and, and let you go, but to be a consistent voice and kind of guiding part of the design process. That sounds like a, a good practice. Having the quantitative aspect, also probably the, the qualitative aspect as you're thinking about design. 
if if you know if you were to talk to like a business leader on some of the return on investment of spending more time and being more intentional about inclusive design practices, what would be some things that you say to them? Yeah, well, definitely. I know I've said it. It would take more time, but ultimately, the ROI is that it's a time saving exercise. The idea being that if you are using the inclusive design process from the very beginning. Then when you ship your product and you market your product and it's out in the world, you're not needing to go back to make workarounds. Oh, we realize there's actually a, a decent market segment that we've missed. And so now we're going to go back to the drawing board and go through another design iteration. Uh, so the, the idea is that you actually save time in the long run. Also, you know, I think there's something to be said about when you meet an excluded population with inclusivity and kind of show, hey, we we hear you, we listen to you, this is actually for you, you're immediately building brand loyalty. You know, someone isn't going to feel like they're an afterthought. Someone isn't going to feel like, oh, okay, this is how they all are. This is the expectation. You build that from the beginning. I think inclusive design, like I mentioned, also ensures long-term and sustainable consumers, which means that you truly have access to a much more authentic consumer base. You know, people who will actually add value back into the products that you are putting out into the market, whether it's, you know, a kind of garment or whether it's a kind of technology. If people are truly invested in what you choose to put out, you will get authentic feedback, which means that at the end of the day, you are able to put out a better product because you're getting on-ground actual feedback from people who are using the product. And again, it's not like influencers where they will sell anything they're getting paid to sell, but it's actual people using your product and giving you feedback to make it much better, which you can then over time ensure that you are investing back in that solution and ensuring a longer timeline for your brand. The other thing inclusive design, I think, uh, also ensures in your teams, in your companies is the push of constantly trying to innovate, constantly trying to grow, whether it's as people or whether it's add-on to the product and constantly learning as a team setup. I think there is a point when innovation kind of lags and that usually happens when there are very set situations for teams to function in versus situations where they can constantly ask questions, constantly try and make things better, try and understand little nuances that possibly you as a larger company may not have thought of. And eventually that actually leads to a much better product. So I think that little push of curiosity is there and that ensures that you're constantly doing things better. As we think about the future, I've read different books on the maker community and, and this trend of mass customization. We had sort of like mass production. And then now with how things can be made, uh, things, you know, we have this opportunity for mass customization where you can do a lot of customization. It seems like that trend could pair with, you know, inclusive design. When we get to like mass production, it seems like that's where we have to be even more intentional with things that are going to hit the general audience. They don't exclude parties that are important to the user base and also maybe to your point to the company's revenue potential. 
right? It's like, and so if they're saving time and being able to hit a larger user group because they've configured the right things or they've they've been more sophisticated in how they're connecting with their various audiences, then they they could be even more competitive. Your note right there about mass production also got me thinking about an example from the fashion industry that I'd kind of read about recently that I think it all kind of connects. It's all about sustainability and inclusivity and the future, right? Which I think is just a great place that we're going. The idea that, you know, so this company was making real life avatars. So if everyone could have an avatar that looked like them and we had fashion brands creating clothes in the digital space, right? Then everyone could get an idea of what a piece of clothing would look like on them, in their body, in their environment, if they, you know, are using a wheelchair or if they are missing a leg or if they, you know, want to wear an oversized clothes because that's the style that works for them. They don't have to imagine what an an item would look like based on a model. And then there's the idea that because we don't know what we look like, consumers will buy two to three items of the same piece of clothing, but in multiple sizes, just to get the one that fits them. And so the production costs, the shipping costs, this is a really cool way that inclusive design can really impact the fashion industry and and the overproducing that we're seeing there. So sustainability implications and it's an exciting thing to, to think about if as long as, and the, the technology is becoming more and more accessible. So it's interesting to think about where that will be, where the future of inclusive design will impact there. Thanks for that example. That, that is really exciting to think about. Having my own avatar. Yeah. I'm going to go try on like 20 pairs of sunglasses and like a whole bunch of shirts. And it's going to, if it's close to me, then maybe, you know, I don't have to order three of them. Mm-hmm. That sounds really promising. Let's think about the future a little bit more and shift just a little bit. As we think about the future, like, how do we know we're going to have like gotten this right? Like any thoughts on, on sort of like, Hey, this is an important trend. But like, how do we know like, Hey, we're, we're kind of, we're hitting this right. That's a good question. I would say there's one thing. The first thing that came to my mind was First, don't be afraid to make mistakes. I think, you know, a lot of approaching inclusivity can feel intimidating because you don't want to do the wrong thing. I think if you approach design choices with authenticity and with listening to the, you know, people, hearing authentic experiences and bringing those into the design process, if you make a mistake, it's going to be okay. It's iterative. Yes, 100%. And I think that that's also something that we've learned with agile design is, you know, make a decision, try it out, learn from it and continue and get better and better. So what does like inclusive design look like when it's done right? I'd say it looks invisible. I, you know, when you try to think about, well, what are great examples of inclusive design? Hopefully a lot of them are invisible because we've solved a problem that now serves the greater population anyways, Right. So I'd say business leaders could look at it and understand, well, how much did I spend to get this product off the ground? How many people are buying it? You know, I think that that's a pretty objective way to look at, you know, is my investment in inclusive design giving me the return? 
the population right now is super aware of the choices that they're making in everyday life whether it's a purchase or whether it's the community that is affected by their purchases or whether it's the physical social setting that they are choosing to be in so i'm hoping that inclusive design would ensure smarter and better design solution that are more crowdsourced that are more feedback driven and of course then bettered through technology i'm also hoping there would be a clear shift in how teams function and really look at the solution or even the way they work in a more cohesive approach you know whether it's investing or incubating multiple high functioning collaborative think tanks in a truly diverse manner and of course leaders who have the vision leaders who have the insight to let their team members constantly ask questions not be afraid to think out of the box not be afraid to suggest things that may not be the norm and lastly i think being able to run an agile team with an inclusive lens can you think of any examples of inclusive design that are like blown your mind like wow yeah so i think what something we said was you know inclusive design should be invisible and So it's hard to to choose something that's, you know, blows your mind, but recently I did see something that actually blew my mind and it was the idea that there were in the medical field models and diagrams, visuals of reproductive organs and babies it, that were in darker skin tones. And I never realized that this was like astonishing for the field you know I, i because i'm so used to my own skin color and every medical diagram i've ever seen is a person with my skin color and then kind of going down the rabbit hole of that a little bit you know you you learn that uh black women are three times more likely to die in childbirth than white women and you you have to wonder you know are the fact that doctors are able to empathize and and picture and practice on light skin tones their entire education does that have an impact on black women who are going through childbirth so i think the fact that a team or a designer or you know just someone said this isn't right we need diverse skin tones here we need to see infants in the womb who are black infants i think that's that blew my mind What advice would you give to your kids in the future about being more inclusive or maybe even to your grandparents? You know, one or the other. Interested in your advice there. I feel really lucky to be in Seattle and to be, you know, I feel like surrounded by other parents who want to approach inclusivity with their kids. I think it's important to let your children know that there are different skin tones and that because of that there may be different ways that that person operates in the world whether it's because of their culture or because of the way that other people are imposing their views onto them when i was raised you know i had a lot of friends of of different colors but my two best friends were half black and half white and when i was about 8 years old it was embarrassing my mom said to me you know i never would have been able to play with those your friends because of your different colors it's really cool that you have friends who are different colors and i say it's a little embarrassing because it wasn't until that point that i realized that they were different skin tones i think 
that I don't want to raise my kids that way. I want them to be aware that, you know, people have different experiences because of their skin color, like I said, whether or not it's culturally or because of the way people impose it on them. So I think awareness of the world around you, empathy for people, and always just teaching my kids to to ask questions and not to judge right away, I think is a huge one for us. We don't say weird. We don't say ew. We say, oh, that is different. And then if you, if you have questions, you can ask me or we can ask other people together. Thanks for the advice. I have kids as well. And so that's helpful. I also grew up in Seattle and you know, my best friends are Asian. My first girlfriend was black. And, you, you know, if you grow up in mm-hmm. some of these climates where it's more natural, then, then maybe it's not even perceived until it's called out. But I think that nonetheless, we all live in our own worlds uh, with our own perceptions. We're all missing the broader picture. So it's been great to have this conversation about how we can design the future with intent. You know, the, the, the future is all this amazing technology across these different verticals and markets. But together, how do we design holistically with intent? This principle of inclusive design really resonates as we try to get it right, you know, in the next 10 or 20 years and reflect back and be like, hey, we learned from the last 10 or 20. That last 10 or 20 changed us. We became more divisive, but we learned. We learned from that and we went forward with more intent. Yeah, absolutely. It's the intention that's important and authenticity, bringing people in and hearing real experiences and solving for those problems. Great to have you with us, Vanessa, to kind of get your insights and to hear your passion for the space as we work together on building an even better future. Jeff, thank you so much for bringing me. It's been a pleasure to talk about this. I feel like I could talk forever about it. So I appreciate the time and the platform. It's fun. Thank you. Take care. The Future of Podcast is brought to you by Fresh Consulting. To find out more about how we pair design and technology together to shape the future, visit us at freshconsulting.com. Make sure to search for The Future of an Apple Podcast, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any of our future episodes. And on behalf of our team here at Fresh, thank you for listening.